Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. When Donald Trump came onto the scene in 2015, he was talking about how Mexico was, in his estimation, sending drug dealers and rapists across the border. Some analysts assumed his rhetoric would be poison for Latino voters. But in 2016, Trump did no worse than Mitt Romney with that group, and possibly better, depending on the data that you look at. And in 2020, Trump improved on his 2016 margin with Latino voters by five percentage points, according to the exit polls. Now, Joe Biden won Latino voters on the whole, and easily, 65% to 32%. But as people who watch elections know, trends and margins matter. While Trump won the 2016 election, his erosion of support amongst college-educated white voters was a harbinger of what was to come for Republicans in 2018 and 2020. There are also examples of these kinds of shifts being one-off events, like when George W. Bush made big gains with Latinos in 2004, only to have them very much reversed by Obama in 2008. Whether Republican gains amongst Latino voters become a trend or a singular event will depend on the underlying reasons for these shifts and what the parties do about them. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. The political research firm Equis Research, which focuses on Latino political engagement, recently published a postmortem looking at how the Latino vote changed in 2020 and some of the possible reasons why. The co-founders of Equis Research are here with me to discuss it. Stephanie Valencia is the president of Equis. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. And Carlos Odio is the senior vice president. Welcome back, Carlos. Hello. Thanks for having me. So to begin, I mentioned that the exit polls show Trump's margin amongst Latino voters improved by five points. But exit polls have shortcomings and limitations, especially during the pandemic. There were even more complications. So it's important to look at other sources of data to fully understand the picture of 2020, which is exactly what you did. So what did you find and how accurate were those exit polls in the end? Let me just start by saying that you're right. You know, a lot of initial reactions coming out of election day, election night, for us, it was an election set of weeks, really are formed by the exit polls, which are historically not very accurate. And especially as you try to pull subgroups of Latino voters or or really try to understand movement of the sub segments of the Latino electorate are even harder to understand and, and to utilize. And so part of the work that we've done, you know, Carlos and our research team have really been in a research cave since the election, um, judging by his hair, you can see. Um, <laughs> uh, and this postmortem is really the first in, in what will at least be a trilogy of debriefs that we will do on the Latino vote. And what, as you kind of pointed out, we just really scratched the surface as to what we thought might be some of the reasons. What we really tackle in the postmortem is, is what happened. What was this movement to Trump? Where did it happen? What subgroups did it? Was it more or less pronounced? And why? And starting to get into those hypotheses. Yeah, I mean, citing exit polls, as Stephanie knows, is is deeply triggering to me, especially uh, in the 2020 context, for the reasons you said, Galen. Like, by all that is holy, do not use the exits for Latino estimates. AP VoteCast was better, but like, no, Trump did not win Latinos in North Carolina, for example. So I should say one thing was we were careful to not say this is the precise level of support in a given state. We're looking at shifts. So, for example, if you look at the American Election Eve poll, I think some of their estimates were a little high, but because they poll every election, you can see the shifts. Between that, between some other good analysis I've seen that's a combination of precinct data with polling, you have an estimate that's around an eight to nine point dip in Democratic two-way support from 2016 to 2020. If you want to talk in terms of margins, that means you're looking at about an 18 point margin shift nationally. Obviously, that differs by state. So the lowest 
shift was in Maricopa County, Arizona. You see non-existent shift in a place like Georgia. And the highest, which we've all talked about a lot now, is South Florida and South Texas, but also maybe parts of New Jersey. It's just different in a place like New Jersey because you're talking about going from Clinton at 90% to Biden at 80%, but these are still astronomically, one would almost say unsustainably high levels of Democratic support. So it seems like the exit polls underestimated how much Latino voters shifted towards Trump in the 2020 election. It depends which one you are looking at, and it differs by state. I mean, it's just so unreliable that especially if you then try to extend that to saying it was caused by this subgroup movement or that subgroup movement is where it gets very dicey. What we have tried to do in our postmortem is say, let's go back and look at what we can try to nail down now, which is who did shift and how big a shift was that from what we can tell from in-cycle polling. And happy to kind of say the limitations of that, it's all imperfect because it then speaks to, well, what were we missing in the polling? Was the polling accurately capturing these trends? But at least it starts to give us a better sense, a more data-based sense, empirical sense of who actually was holding back from Trump and then ended up closer to Trump by the end of this election. Yeah, and one of the things you include in your postmortem, which we've talked about on this podcast before, is probably the best way of going about figuring out where voting shifts happen is looking at precinct level data, basically looking at precincts where a lot of Latino voters live and seeing how those changes evolve from 2016 to 2020. Listeners are also used to us talking about how Latino voters are not a monolith. They have never voted as a block, and there's a variety of factors that shape how they vote. Were these trends isolated to one particular segment of Latino voters, or was this just kind of across the board? It was definitely across the board. And I think there were places where we had been tracking deep anti-Trump sentiment, for example, among women throughout the cycle. And women shifted on election day for Trump. You know, And then over the course of the cycle, again, we saw this, the college-on-college divide that existed among the kind of general electorate hadn't been as pronounced among Latinos until some of the post-election work that we've done. In addition, the precinct-level analysis that Carlos and the team have really been done to dig in to see where the, these movement shifts around subgroups have happened. And I think it'll also be really interesting for us as we go into the next phase of our research, which is really going in state by state, you know, specifically into Florida and Texas, which have been much talked about, to do additional polling, quantitative polling, and qualitative work there to really understand, one, what happened, but then also the why, and really digging into place like South Texas to understand what were the reasons, how much did immigration play into that movement, how much of it was driven by the economy, how much of it was driven by social media, how much of it was driven by engagement or lack of engagement from different campaigns. And then similarly, South Florida is a whole other beast. And I think that what we can see in the big takeaway, if there is one top line takeaway, and I know that listeners to the 538 podcast are more sophisticated and understand that there's a lot of nuance to this electorate. But if there is one top line takeaway from this election is that Latinos proved what we have been saying for a very long time, which is they aren't a monolith and not just state to state, but there's an ideological diversity that really showed up in this election that we have to really better understand, for which I think both Democrats and Republicans have the opportunity to make inroads with this community if they make a concerted effort at it. Yeah, not a monolith, I think, is at this point a mantra. I think we've added a corollary here post-election, which is not a monolith, but still a group, which is to say it's still an identity. There is still a group 
Latino identity. And actually what 2020 showed was that in fact, there was shifts that seemed to be unique to people who identified as Latino that cuts across geography and place of origin, right? Geography and place of origin, being what people usually point to when they say Latinos aren't a monolith. They want to talk about Cubans as being different. They want to talk about Puerto Ricans being different. You want to talk about Florida being different than the Southwest. And yet here you saw a baseline shift that seems to cut across those categories and speaks, though, to the way in which Latinos aren't a monolith, not necessarily just by by those variables, but in terms of ideological diversity. I mean, this is not rocket science in many ways. Like any group within the electorate does not have monolithic views And so it's interesting to understand the ways in which, yes, these are human beings with a wide set of views and attitudes, and yes, there are very conservative Latinos. The more interesting question you start getting into then is why did some conservative Latinos not previously support Donald Trump or other Republicans? Yeah, I mean, do you have an idea as to why that's the case? Well, now you're getting to the good stuff, and I want to be clear that in when we talk about the whys of this shift— what we have tried to contribute is how to think about the reasons why to some extent, because part of what 2020 challenged was some of these old facile assumptions. We shouldn't, in our haste to get answers, jump to creating new facile mm-hmm. assumptions. But where we can start is this question on conservatives, because I think we're hearing a lot of discourse around, well, what made Latino conservative Latinos shift toward Trump when the real question is what had held them back before? why weren't conservative Latinos? You know, there's great research as concerns the black vote on this. You know, there's great book, Steadfast Democrats, that talks about the ways in which a racial identity outweighs other ideological concerns. I think there's a similar thing at play with Latinos, that there was a sense of a Latino identity that was holding people back. And I think where we can start to hypothesize, and we have data that speaks to this, is the extent to which when Donald Trump comes down the escalator in 2016, from the moment he starts making the remarks you mentioned, there was a idea established immediately, this guy is anti-Latino. He's anti-immigrant and he's anti-Latino. And this is a little more complicated when we get into it, but the ways in which immigration interacts with identity, I think people are quick to look at it as just a set of policies. And well, Latinos, some Latinos agree with building the wall and some Latinos don't like sanctuary cities, whatever it is, and are missing the larger point that immigration is an easy threshold way to differentiate between two parties and understand this guy is with me and this guy is not. And so in 2016, that was front and center in a way that we would argue it was not front and center in 2020. Immigration is like a gateway drug for Latino voters. It's like it's really trying to understand whether they're with us or what, whether they're against us. And I just, I, I think that because 2016 was so, and 2018 was so focused, immigration was such a central part of the campaign, when all of a sudden it wasn't, you saw something different happen in 2020. And when you try to understand the ways that COVID and the economy and the economic shutdown impacted Latinos and Latino voters and Latino electorate, perhaps more uniquely, Latinos are driving some of the largest entrepreneurship and small business growth in this country. So they were uniquely hit as small business owners, essential workers and being frontline workers, you know, and being exposed to the health impacts of COVID and the pandemic in a unique way. So I think there was also an interesting way to think about the way that the combination of where this moment in time that we were in right now that very uniquely and acutely affected this community could have also shown up in a more pronounced way as well. I want to dig a little bit further into the question of immigration. How much do Latino voters care about immigration in comparison with non-Latino voters? Because I think 
it seems to be the assumption amongst Democrats that this is perhaps the highest priority issue. I'm not exactly sure why. You know, there's lots of non-Latino voters in America who are the descendants of immigrants who support restrictivist immigration policy. But what's that interplay there? Like, is that a bad assumption on the part of Democrats? Sergio Ben-Dixon, who was a great Hispanic pollster, used to say, people misunderstand this. It's not that it's going to, immigration is always going to come up number one when you ask what's your top priority or top issue right now, but that it is a threshold question in the way that if you think of a Cuban voter, they're not going to answer that Cuba policy is their number one issue. But if you're perceived to be wrong on Cuba, then you're disqualified from the go. If you're a, a certain segments of Jewish voter in Florida, you're not going to answer Israel as your top priority. But if you perceive that someone is anti-Israel, you're not going to vote for them. And so it's understanding that it's a threshold matter in that way. It's an identity question that immigration, even for a voter, like say like a Puerto Rican voter for whom it is not as immediately applicable because Puerto Ricans don't have immigration issues in the same way. One, they're in communities where it is an issue. And two, that they perceive that when certain kinds of candidates are talking about immigration, they're not narrowly just talking about a category of undocumented immigrants based on paperwork, but that they are talking more broadly about Hispanics and about how they view cultural change in this country. And that is something that Latino voters have been very keyed in on. Now, we're the first to say, you should not only talk to Latino voters about immigration, but over learning that lesson and saying, well, then let's not talk about it at all is also a mistake. Yeah, immigration can be a differentiating issue between Democrats and Republicans. And I think the wrong lesson to take away from all this is only talk to Latinos about the economy or don't talk about immigration at all. When Carlos is right, you know, immigration is always in the back of many Latino voters' minds and is seen as this gateway threshold issue to try to understand whether or not a particular candidate sees Latinos as a net positive or a net negative to society. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons to take away from this elector, but I think one of the things we want to impress is that not talking about immigration isn't necessarily the answer either. And that we're about to go into the field on an immigration poll here in the next week or so among Latino voters. I mean, obviously a lot has shifted and changed in the landscape that we want to better understand stand around where Latino voter sentiment is uh, today. Yeah, I want to go back to your previous point about how while Latinos are not a monolith, they're a group, that you saw these trends across the board, across different geographic areas, across generation or country of origin, et cetera, et cetera. But when we try to nail down on what were key indicators of the voters who would either shift their preference or turn out when they hadn't previously who were the voters that seemed most attracted to Trump who hadn't previously been? Great question. I think Stephanie said this at the beginning. You know, our major takeaway being that a segment of the Latino vote is swingier than commonly assumed. There's a stereotype of the classic swing voter that pictures white suburban. So Trump loses the Latino vote badly by a two to one margin. But he makes gains by appealing to Latino voters who are usually on the sidelines of politics. They are swing voters. They look like true swing voters. You sit with them in focus groups and you say, my goodness, this really is a swing voter. I've actually sat in a focus group and thought, did we screen poorly for this group? Because these sound like Democrats. But then when you actually ask them who you vote for, and they voted for Trump. And what are the characteristics? We saw that men still are more pro-Trump than the women for sure, but that the sky high levels of anti-Trump sentiment that we had seen among Latinas in 2019 kind of came back down to earth a little bit. 
as we were mentioning, ideology is a big indicator here. The biggest shifts were among conservative Latinos. People hear conservative these days and think it just means Republican. Among Latinos in particular, as it is among non-Latino black voters, that's not the case. Actually, the biggest shift was among conservative independents. And you saw shifts in motivation among conservative Democrats. So conservative independents seem to have held back and then moved toward him toward the end. And then we found to be one of the most interesting is not so much an identity, but an interesting category, which is a lower propensity voter. If you look at people who are lower frequency, who per modeling are less likely to vote, there's a common assumption that those voters are going to be as democratic or likely more democratic than those who are regular voters. And what we saw in cycle is those lower propensity voters start to shift toward Trump. And so this was a rare situation where increased turnout accrued to the benefit of the Republican. I think a lot of assumptions have been made about Latino voters. If you turn out a Latino voter who's been on the sidelines, a non-voter, that you're going to turn out a Democrat or somebody who will vote Democrat. And I think what we saw this cycle in comparing modeling to how voters were modeled by Democratic and progressive modeling and how it ultimately panned out, there was a big gap and a big shift between those two, those who we assumed who Democrats, you know, might think that like, Ultimately, we will turn out a Democrat by reaching this voter, and ultimately they were more of a swing or persuasion voter and needed to be communicated to well before, two weeks before the election, and were being potentially reached out to by Republicans and conservative campaigns. I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up in your postmortem, because especially after 2016, the thinking was, well, high turnout in the upper Midwest might be bad for Democrats because a lot of low propensity or non-voters there are non-white college educated people who would be more drawn to Trump. But that when you look at states like Arizona or Texas or Florida, that high turnout would actually help Democrats because there are large numbers of Latinos who are low propensity voters or just haven't voted previously. This flies in the face of that. And so does this change how Democrats should be thinking about flipping a state like Texas or gaining ground in a state like Florida? And that just increasing turnout is not the answer. Like they actually have to persuade voters on the issues. Yeah, 538 and others, you know, Nate Cohn and the New York Times, like others have done great analysis of like this non-voter question. And the conclusion was Latino turnout would automatically be better for Democrats. What happens is you have Latino voters who are treated as a target for registration and then mobilization. But there's a step in between that's education and information, aka persuasion, that seems to be missing. And so this is to say there is still incredible potential. And for Democrats, really sky-high potential among Latinos who are still on the sidelines of this process. It is still more efficient to try to get these voters than to try to swing a certain kind of suburban white voter. It's more affordable, really, if you want to think in these terms. Wait, why is it affordable? <laughs> well, it's cost-efficient, right? Like, the cost per vote— of trying to flip a suburban white voter is much higher than that of trying to get a Latino non-voter into the process. But you can't be too cheap and just assume that it's all a registration game when there does have to be some sort of follow-up and engagement. I think that's the lesson. You can't treat Latinos like these democratic robots that all you gotta do is plug the batteries in and then they're gonna in lockstep turn out for the democratic vote. Um, there is engagement necessary. Two weeks before the election. And I think what I hope to see is that over the course of the next year, two years, 10 years, I mean, this really is 
a challenge and, you know, an opportunity for both Democrats and Republicans over the course of the next decade. Latinos are driving population growth. They're driving a good part of their share of the electorate. And Democrats, if they're serious about it, should really be approaching an understanding of this electorate in a similar way with curiosity and investment as they have white swing voters. Because ultimately, I think there's that much to learn and understand about this part of the electorate. I want to dig into a little more of the why behind these shifts. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As you mentioned at the start, this is the beginning of a lot of research that you plan on doing uh, in terms of Latino voters in 2020 and going forward. And so you offer hypotheses as to why we saw these shifts, but not definitive answers. And we talked a little bit about COVID. We talked a little bit about immigration and it decreasing in salience in 2020, potentially. But you, you offer many hypotheses. You mentioned like half dozen or a dozen. What are some of the other ideas that you have for why these shifts could have happened? Yeah, so part of what we did after the election was talk to folks on the ground in these key states. We talked to academics. We like looked at all the great reporting that was out there. And we looked at the data as well and what we were looking at, seeing in our polling and saying, okay, what's a set of credible hypotheses? Understanding that no one theory was going to have full explanatory power. It was probably multiple working together. But at the same time, and this is like my favorite post-election activity, which is people get on the phone and say, well, it was definitely this list of 25 pet obsessions that I have that move the Latino vote, right? It's like, it's not 25 things. If you are going to hypothesize that it is something like say stimulus checks, you have to then also explain why that's unique to Latino voters. Because guess what? Everybody got a stimulus check. So what is the theory of why then it would have moved the Latino voter in a way that didn't move other people? So on our list, I think we mentioned the shifting salience of immigration and Latino identity. Stephanie talked about the COVID era economy 
people scared of a Biden shutdown. You know, there are other theories along the lines of the Trump campaign itself. The Trump campaign ran a very aggressive outreach to Latino voters. Sometimes it was the most aggressive outreach to Latino voters that we've seen in the modern era. Bush gets the reputation for outreach to Latinos, but he didn't have social media. So Donald Trump was really able to exploit the Hispanics for Trump and Latinos for Trump work that he was doing online that sent really a message of invitation, right? Like for a certain kind of Latino voter who wasn't used to getting an appeal from Republicans, here was like an out and out appeal talking all the times about Hispanic voters and a more vocal Trump Latino voter, that there was a permission structure that was created by having a very vocal Latino for Trump in a way that you didn't have it in 2016. Let's remember, Donald Trump didn't even try to get the Latino vote in 2016. Half-ass doesn't even cut it. It was zero-ass. And this time around, you actually get to see the kind of dividends that get paid off when actually it's a competitive race. I think Republicans in Florida have for a while demonstrated how that is possible. And when the Trump campaign and other surrogates for Latinos for Trump were reaching out to Latino voters, what was the message that they were delivering to them? A lot of it was on the economy and a lot of it was focused on, I mean, I think one of the things that people fail to recognize or don't want to recognize or maybe flies in the face of trying to understand again why this shift toward Trump is, you know, Trump outside of George W. Bush, who probably made the last real attempt at reaching the Latino vote in a more strategic way. You know, Donald Trump had social media at his disposal. He had a campaign who understood how to reach Latinos using digital and had a digital army and lots of digital resources to reach Latinos. You know, I think one of the things we point out in our slide deck is how Donald Trump was one using YouTube to reach Latino voters on election day, had bought the masthead of YouTube with Jorge Masvidal, who was a, a UFC fighter or MMA fighter, a Hispanic. And that was for a general audience. And that was a messenger that PragerU had been using and that other folks had been using to reach Latino voters. So the economy, you know, in particular was something that they knew they could go and talk to Latino voters about. You saw in places like South Florida, in addition to the messaging on the economy and kind of socialism, that you saw this conservative media ecosystem that they didn't stop since 2016 in reaching Latino voters with a drip, drip, drip of information. And that was all part of this well-connected set of influencers and radio and television, along with the steady drip of information and disinformation and misinformation around socialism and Joe Biden. So you have places like in, in South Florida where that kind of approach really probably helped to accelerate or could have helped to accelerate what happened among Latino voters and specifically among Cuban-Americans and non-Cuban, non-Puerto Rican voters. And that was in addition to just kind of a steady drip of messaging on the economy that they were doing everywhere. Yeah, some of the immediate aftermath analysis of 2020 was very much like, oh, okay, well, it was the socialism appeal to Cubans or Venezuelans that was really the deciding factor. What you do in this postmortem is you make it very clear that these shifts were not specific to Cubans or Venezuelans in particular, and you kind of break out some of the different groups, you know, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, people of Latin American descent. Were there divisions along those lines? And you mentioned socialism. I, I will say socialism was a factor. Right? And the way I think we have to go back to how, what Republicans really mean when they do the socialism attack, which is not just an economic worldview. It's something much broader that really tries to position itself as counter to the American dream. And it brings in other cultural and racial dimensions too. So I want to say socialism is undoubtedly a factor. I think teasing it out requires further research. But to your question, Cubans obviously shifted back to Trump, right? They returned to the kind of levels that we had seen pre-Obama. 
But there was even more underperformance in South Florida among what we call the LATAMs, which is non-Cuban, non-Puerto Rican, Hispanic. And what we mean is not just Venezuelans. Actually, the biggest there are Colombians, Mexican-Americans, and Nicaraguans. Then you have Venezuelans and you have Peruvians and others. And if it had only been Venezuelans, you would not have seen the kind of margin difference in Miami-Dade because likely he broke in with Colombians and Nicaraguans that he was able to see that kind of wild swing. And when I say swing, I mean Clinton getting about 70% in these LATAM precincts to Joe Biden getting around 50% Mm -hmm. in the same precincts. That's a wild swing. So there were other factors there that were built on top of this baseline shift he sees nationally that speak specifically to the ecosystem in Miami, the amount of attention that Trump was spending in Miami, and what is accelerated concerns about things like the left because of an experience um, in Latin America that Donald Trump was explicitly tying to this current moment. You said that there's more to unpack on the socialism appeal and that it gets at perceptions of the American dream. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How was the fear of socialism playing into this election? Yeah, the socialism piece, I think the one that people focus on first is thinking in terms of Latin American policy, like the concern that Venezuelan-style policies would be brought to the United States. So that's like one set of fear. And that likely moved Venezuelans heavily, that influenced in the mindset of Cubans. But there's a piece of the socialism that was pushed more broadly that goes slightly against the idea of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There is a, a strand among Latinos that really has really bought into the American dream. I mean, some of these voters are like the last true believers in the Protestant work ethic, generally speaking. Stephanie talks often about like the Trump intrigue of him as a businessman that appeals to a certain kind of younger Latino man, as it does to other young men, the kind of Elon Musk vision of you can make it in this country, self-made businessman. And talking about socialism as being the counter of that. Socialism being things are just going to be given away for free. Socialism is some cultural and economic elites telling you how you can spend your money, telling you what books you can read, telling you what TV shows you should watch, what you can say on social media. And that that's how socialism becomes broader than just nationalization of private property, then gets tied into arguments around cancel culture, political correctness, or even Black Lives Matter. What Carlos talked about is more this antithesis of socialism, which is like this role of of capitalism and and making it in this country an opportunity to be a self-made person. And, you know, again, because Latinos really represent this like small business entrepreneurial ethos. So many, especially Latino men, 25 to 55, really view Donald Trump as this um, self-made, up by your bootstraps, successful businessman that they aspire to be. Not to mention the fact that some people, I think, relate the intrigue to Trump to machismo. And I think it is actually less driven by gender or, but it's more of like his cult of personality. And this is actually something we've seen and have kind of started to probe in some focus groups given, you know, Trump has signaled he might run in 2024. Is there any other Republican candidate who represents the same set of ideals or or is this really something that's unique to Trump? And what we've at least found in some of the initial focus group probing that we've done is that same kind of 
appeal doesn't just naturally transfer to somebody like, say, Marco Rubio. So this really is something that, you know, is related to Trump and their ability to kind of see him as like a somebody who challenges, who's like the anti-politician, who challenges conventional wisdom and challenges the way things have been done previously and has been successful in a way that many Latinos, especially Latino men who are small business owners, aspire to be and aspire to be successful. There was a, a story right before the election about a, a Latino small business owner in Scranton, Pennsylvania, who said the art of the deal was his Bible. And, you know, all of the work that Trump did to build his businesses was like what he wanted to follow because he wanted to become and leave behind for his family, you know, a successful business empire. And this was a small business restaurant business owner in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So you can just see how there is this kind of relation or aspiration to what Trump represents that I think is very unique to him. We'll continue to probe and to look into that and see how this, both of the personality narrative and attraction differentiates from, say, policy and like the economy is something that we'll have to keep digging into over the course of the next year or two. So I think what you're saying is very unique to Donald Trump, this idea that he's a successful businessman. You know, I just trust him because he's had successful businesses. Of course, you can and many people have debated the veracity of those ideas. But there is something that is also more fundamental to the two parties at this point, which is views of culture and gender and race and things like that that are not necessarily unique to Donald Trump. Maybe he made them more pronounced in the way that he campaigned, but play into a decades-long trend of college-educated voters, for example, trending towards Democrats, non-college-educated voters trending towards Republicans. That underlying dynamic, do you see that as reason to believe that there may be even more shift towards Republicans amongst Latino voters? Because, of course, at this point, Republicans are not even winning the majority of non-college educated Latino voters in the way that they're winning non-college educated white voters. I'm going to give a caveat to this entire section of conversation, which is this is where we're entering into the qualitative slash wild speculation part of things, <laughs> right? Enough. There's a reason a lot of this is not in the final postmortem deck because we're still gathering additional data behind some of this. And, and we try to have a high set a high burden of yeah. proof. And I should say, both of you are more than welcome to come back on the show once you've conducted more research. I would love to hear what else you find. Yes. Who knows what we will find? That is, if I may call it, the fun of doing new research in this moment. So to your question, I do want to say, sometimes we can overcomplicate this matter. I think with Trump, there was an appeal that if you simplify it was outsider and businessman. He was appealing to a kind of voter who does not have a fully formed partisan identity, who is not paying attention to all of the policy debates. There is an appeal that is mirrored in Bernie Sanders' appeal during the primary. It's not the same voter, but it's the same kind of voter. There was a very simple appeal of Bernie Sanders as outsider shaking things up, who is going to fight on your side for free healthcare, free college, whatever it is. And there's a similar appeal there that Trump has. To your point of whether that's replicable, is this a trend? Is this a one-time occurrence? We don't yet know. I think there's enough evidence that Republicans can exploit some of these same dynamics. I mean, again, Florida Republicans have been doing it for a while. Rick Scott is in so many ways a Donald Trump prototype, down to the fact that they have the same pollster. It's not a coincidence. And Rick Scott, who has zero charisma and projects zero political confidence, though had this image among Florida voters as being an outsider and a businessman. And he was signaling that he cared through things like, for example, going to Puerto Rico, you know, seven times during his last campaign, right? I do want to say, like, we get caught up sometimes in these policy debates. And I think the broader question of 
does this candidate care about someone like me? And then how is that candidate defining who the me is? Like what identity are they trying to tap into? Is the broader question of the moment and one that is replicable for Republicans, not all Republicans. Like Steph mentioned, Marco Rubio is trying very hard, but that trying probably actually blows up in his face because voters will tell you in groups, he sounds like another politician. Yeah. I want to dig into this point on what Carlos just said about the similarities and differences between Trump and Bernie Sanders, because I do think that's something that as we kind of already kind of thinking about moving into the next cycle makes my head hurt. But like, I think there were things that Bernie really tapped into in the Latino electorate in the primary that I think are worth digging into more, which is, you know, this notion around free community college and like education, healthcare. And when you look at like issues that really matter to Latinos and what's affecting their day-to-day lives as the general electorate, but in particular, again, that are acutely impacting Latino voters, one is education. You know, a disproportionate number of Latinos do not go to four-year institutions. They're getting associate's degrees and other certifications from community colleges and aren't completing necessarily high school. Two is you also have one of the highest uninsured populations pre-ACA was Latinos. And so access to free quality health care is something that is always going to be driving their thinking and their top needs and all that. So I think, you know, when we look at what were some of like Bernie's top policy priorities that really reached and touched Latino voters and really kind of engaged them, it was free community college, healthcare, and immigration. And as we kind of move forward, I think keeping that in mind as it relates to, you know, not just talking about the economy broadly to Latino voters, but also talking very specifically about small businesses and the opportunity of small business and entrepreneurship. And then again, these other pieces around education and healthcare. So it does take a more holistic approach to thinking about what does matter to Latino voter and how they are are living their everyday lives and surviving, then it is just simply about the candidate and their personality and whether they're seen as a typical politician or somebody who's challenging the status quo. I think it's a both and. Yeah. And to that end, of course, Democrats did very well with Latino voters in Maricopa County. Latino voters are a significant part of why Democrats were able to flip Arizona. You also mentioned that we didn't see some of these shifts towards Trump in Georgia amongst Latino voters. In the places where we didn't see these shifts, what's the why there? Is it something that Democrats did right? Why didn't they see these losses in Maricopa County or parts of Georgia? Yeah, let's look at Maricopa because if you go down to precinct level and you start comparing vote totals, how many votes did Donald Trump get in 2020 compared to 2016? You do the same thing for Joe Biden compared to Clinton. It gives you a sense of the increased turnout everywhere and the extent to which this increased turnout helped Trump because you have a surge in Trump votes everywhere. Anywhere you look, there's this huge surge in Trump votes. But what happens in Maricopa is you have this surge in Trump votes and then you have a surge in Democratic votes that kind of rises up to meet it. And so you had a clearly effective mobilization effort. And I think you can credit the organizing infrastructure that's been built up there. You can credit the campaign spending and the amount of attention that was paid there. You can look at the youth of the electorate. I think there's a variety of factors. But there is an example where Democrats were able to combat this Trump surge. You can't always control the part that Trump does. But what you can allow as Democrats is an asymmetrical advantage. When we talk about disinformation, what's really happening is one-sided propaganda through closed circuits that Democrats are not accessing and are not competing in. And so it's that one-sided piece that's really dangerous. And I think what you had in Arizona was you had an all-out war and 
groups like Lucha in Arizona, like Arizona Winds, were showing up and turning out their people and were able thus to see a minimal Trump gain there relative to what you saw in other places. Yeah. Just wrapping up here, you know, you've talked a lot about how the two parties are engaging Latino voters. If you had to give Democrats and Republicans both a message about how to engage Latino voters going into the future, what would it be? I think for me, you know, my hope with Democrats at this point in time is that they approach understanding the Latino voter and Latino voters with the same level of curiosity investment that they have white swing voters. It's worth the investment, as Cross pointed out, the cost per vote and the efficiency in it longer term is a good payoff if they spend the time to do it. But if they continue to do things as usual, we could risk, you know, and I think this is kind of the bigger question of the postmortem is, is this a moment in time and a unique set of circumstances that created this anomaly? Or is this a longer term trend? And that's something only time will tell. And I don't think Democrats can risk taking that chance. On the Republican side, I think you're even starting to see some of this play into the current border dynamic is not overplaying their hand on immigration. I think if there's one lesson to learn and one takeaway from, you know, again, 2016 to 2020, is that one thing that really affected Latino voters in 2016 and holding back from Trump was likely immigration, as we point out, obviously affected a broader part of the electorate and white swing voters as well. And that it's a tight line and a tight rope, but like be cautious not to overplay your hand on immigration. There's a lot of opportunity to continue to reach and engage Latino voters on the economy, but has to be done in, in a real and authentic way. And again, this notion of Trump being the anti-politician candidate, you can't just come to Latino voters with any candidate and expect to continue to make the gains that you made among Latino voters in 2020 with just any Republican candidate. And what I'd say to, especially the Democrats, is don't just be fighting the last war. Here we are talking about the last election, but this is a highly dynamic electorate. A majority of eligible Latinos didn't choose Biden or Trump. They chose not to vote. So the big lesson here is to mind the margins, right? You look at a poll and you see Latinos at 60%, but the real movement's on the margins. It's not being picked up in a sample of 100 Latinos. And so I think one troubling thing you pick up a lot when you do these focus groups, when you look at all of the past literature on Latino vote is the sense of a guest mentality. You have a lot of Hispanics who will say, no matter how long I've been in this country, I feel like a guest here. I feel like I'm in somebody else's home. And when you're in somebody else's home, you don't sit down without permission, much less start to move around the furniture. And so that's a big challenge for our democracy to overcome that disconnect between voters who feel like that and their government and their parties and these campaigns. And so a big part of this is inviting Latinos to the table. And that invitation is incredibly powerful, as we saw in 2020. And there's a lesson that there are gains there to be had for both parties if they continue to help Latinos feel not just included, but kind of empowered within their coalitions. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you, Stephanie and Carlos. Thank you. Thank you. Stephanie Valencia and Carlos Odio are the co-founders of the political research firm Equis Research. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.
people who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.